These are the oldest stories, online at oldeststories.net. In the days of the prophet Samuel, the people of Israel had a peculiar problem. They wanted a king, but they didn't have one. Now, most people have a king whether they want one or not, and as God himself points out, kings are a great institution for taxing and burdening the people. But according to the biblical book of Samuel, the people really want a king. And so God lets them have it, good and hard, for better or for worse. This, at least, is the perspective of the Deuteronomistic historian. And good luck on me saying that over and over again for the next couple of episodes. But there's much that's unclear about Old Testament authorship, despite the often confident and often contradictory assertions of modern scholars. Now, the core issue, familiar to those who have listened to the Mesopotamian history episodes before this one, is that the ancient Near East didn't have a tradition of authorship in general. Now, that may seem odd to us today, but most ancient scribes had no interest in being credited as the inventor of a work, but preferred to think that even when they were innovating in a text, they were actually faithfully preserving some tradition or another that went back either to the true events as they happened, or in the case of more timeless wisdom, back to the gods themselves. And so... We often have to invent names for the various layers of authorship that we find in Scripture, especially the Old Testament. The author of Chronicles and Ezra-Nehemiah, which are pretty clearly written as a single unit, is often called, quite fittingly, the Chronicler. The book of Proverbs, which is identical in style to many of the famous proverb collections of the Near East, is attributed to wise old Solomon, even though we know that he, at best, collected most of it. He didn't come up with it all himself, since at least a few of these proverbs have prior versions in ancient Mesopotamian and Egyptian proverb collections. Then we look at all the texts running from Deuteronomy through Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings, and some have seen in those a single hand authoring all the texts. One scribe attempting to record a grand sweeping history of his people, or perhaps a school of scribes with a similar unified style. Because it's usually thought to begin in the book of Deuteronomy, this figure, who may well have been a collection of people, either all at once or over time, gets called the Deuteronomistic Historian, if I pronounce it correctly. And there is at least some reason to believe he actually existed. Now, certainly Samuel and Kings were written together at a later date, which we know because they make mention of things like even to this day and the fall of Israel and Judah. Of course, all the references that this historian makes to earlier, now lost, contemporaneous chronicles tells us that he's essentially redacting earlier works. The question of who wrote Deuteronomy and when is 
too large a discussion today. We're going to save it for King Josiah, who's going to get a massive episode, but it's going to be a while. Anyway, who wrote Joshua and Judges, however, is a bit more open. Now, certainly there are markers that both of these works were written by someone who knew that at least Israel was going to apostatize and fall. Little mentions of later days being inserted, not as prophecy, but as authorial notes. And yet Joshua seems to many people to have been two separate works about the entry into Canaan that get squished together. Now, as we noted, Joshua 1 through 12 is a very standard ancient conquest narrative and likely comes from a source close to Joshua, uh, while the rest of the book is a very different sort of focus and style. And then the last two chapters may also be from yet another source. Judges, similarly, is a collection of stories about the heroes and conflicts of the pre-monarchy period. And certain aspects of it are hard to square with the rest of the Deuteronomistic histories. It has been noted by many a scholar that chapters 17 through 21 of Judges are perhaps the most pro-monarchy chapters in the entire Bible. And aside from the quick break into Ruth, which is really a modern Christian invention anyway, they're followed almost immediately by the first few chapters of Samuel, in which God and his prophet argue strenuously against monarchy, with God going so far as to say that by demanding an earthly king, the people of Israel are rejecting their heavenly king. And so it's usually assumed, therefore, that Judges was composed during the good days of the monarchy, while Samuel was composed either as it was falling apart or after it had already been destroyed. And here, as we move into the monarchy, we kind of have to step back and set the stage a bit, which forces us to confront a problem I had hoped to avoid, the chronological ordering of the book of Judges. As mentioned before, there are reasons to think that the stories that we have are not in proper chronological order. Most prominently, the idea that the Danite War actually belongs way at the beginning. The anti-hero of that tale, Micah, is listed in most English Bibles as the grandson of Manasseh. And yet nearly all commentary traditions agree that this originally said Micah was the grandson of Moses, and therefore only one generation removed from the conquest of Canaan. Additionally, in the course of that war, the Danites found a city, which is earlier in the book, but later in time, the hometown of Samson, which tells us that the order of these stories is precisely reversed at least assuming that there aren't two towns with the same name, which is actually entirely possible. Now add to this the idea that Gideon and his son Abimelech may occur fairly late in the period, much closer to the time of Saul, both because the military basis of battle appears to some to have shifted pretty significantly from nomadic warrior types to settled warrior types, in the tale of Gideon getting his recruits to drink at the stream, and because the idea of kingship just seems to be more in the air at the time. 
Meanwhile, the Benjaminite War has been argued as belonging in the early half of the Judges period, because that is Saul's clan, and they need time to recover both in manpower terms and diplomatically in order to get to Saul, or it could be relatively late in the period, because that's where it's placed in the book, or maybe it never happened at all and it was propaganda to justify David taking over from Saul, or maybe it was extensively rewritten to cover up unjustified atrocities by the clan of Judah against the clan of Benjamin. All of those are possibilities that have been proposed, so who really knows? Anyway, I'm going to posit that the Danite War comes first, relatively early in Judges, then the Benjaminite War, then Abimelech, then the Book of Samuel. Now, I don't hold too tightly to that view, but when you put them in that order, it does make a nice trajectory. It's no longer a trajectory of sin, like the narrator wants it to be, but it's one of gradual societal shifts, from a group of tribes being held together with a set of common religious customs into a monarchy headed by King Saul. And I really, really want to get to Saul today, so this is going to be a bit of a long episode. Anyway, Joshua dies at the end of the book of Joshua, and he calls all the people of Israel together, before he dies, obviously, to consecrate them to their shared god, Yahweh. Now, Joshua may never have existed, and this council may never have happened, but the idea that there was a time when a group of tribes and clans within Canaan shared a religious commitment to at least some degree and thus likely had occasional meetings like this, is integral enough to all the stories of this period that if you lose that, you pretty much have to assume that everything before the monarchy is fictional. And so the people of Israel are divided into 12 tribes. Except that the Bible doesn't always agree on who is a tribe and who is a lesser entity, sort of like a clan. Though the patriarchal narratives mostly hold to a fixed set, though even with a bit of wobbling around there, the Deuteronomistic historian seems to add and remove tribes from time to time. And indeed, in the Danite War itself, we see that the tribe of Dan in their lowest point, stops getting called a tribe, and instead just a clan. And of course, quite famously, the Book of Deborah only mentions nine tribes of Israel, though can we say that just because one poem omitted all the tribes that they didn't exist? Who really knows? Anyway, it isn't that strange for clans and tribes to wax and wane. The point is, that as we get into the book of Judges, they've all found their places, more or less, and have some non-exclusive but characteristic territory. But actually, it seems that the Danites drew the short end of the stick, relatively speaking, with that whole territory thing. They're sort of in the middle, near the coastal plain, but don't actually get any of that sweet, sweet Levantine coastline. Their land is wretched and miserable. 
and so they send spies out to go find them a better land. Now, we're into Judges chapter 17 and 18 now, and theologically, this whole migration of Dan is a perverted and corrupted retelling of the Israelite conquest in general. But that isn't so important for us. What is somewhat significant, geopolitically, is that they relocate way up north, and they would play a role in future Israelite politics. But what I find most interesting is the place they stop along the way in their conquest. Now, Micah is occasionally mistaken as a judge because he's one of the main characters in the Book of Judges, but he never gets the title Shofet. Now, he is unquestionably a bad guy in this narrative, and yet only one generation after the conquest He's given a large sum of money from his mother, and he uses it to make an idol of a god. Now, which god he makes an idol of is never explicitly mentioned, but he also makes a priestly garment and an ephod, alongside potentially three different kinds of idols, a carved image, a silver image, and a teraphim. Now, if we assume that all of these are images of native Canaanite gods, it would be very unusual for a man who is as rich and successful as Micah appears to be to take up foreign gods to the exclusion of his native gods. More typical would be for someone to add the foreign god to his native gods, and only over time and potentially generations would the foreign god replace or syncretize completely with the native gods. But let's just assume that these are all foreign gods. That ephod, however, and that garment, now these are both holy items that are set down in the law of Moses, the laws given in the book of Exodus specifically. Now, this could be a later author interposing the trappings of priesthood in a later period, but if this reflects how the story went in a very early period, well, the earlier we place that original story, the earlier we have evidence for yet more of the laws of Moses being considered binding upon the people of Israel. Now, whatever the case, what we have here is not full apostasy, though the Bible certainly treats it as such, but at most a religious compromise, wherein Micah is attempting to worship the gods in the way that he believes is right, through the tools and such of his supposed grandfather. This is syncretism of the sort that was absolutely everywhere in the ancient world, including, as we see over and over again, in Israel. Note that Micah does such a good job at looking legitimate that he's able to hire a Levite to come be his personal priest. Though this Levite is perhaps of poor morals, it again suggests that Micah is doing quite a lot of worship in a distinctly Israelite fashion, which in turn implies that there really was a distinctive Israelite fashion to worship in, even if... Maybe he's failing in some key points. 
But then the spies of Dan come by his house, the vanguard for the main invasion force. And they stop by his house in his nice little shrine. Then they ask for a blessing on their trip. And while there is a lot going on, what is key for us is that they say, in the English Standard Version, inquire of God, please, that we may know whether the journey on which we are setting out will succeed. Now this is a perfectly standard thing to ask of a priest, except that the word they use in the Hebrew is Elohim. Now, Elohim is a somewhat famously ambiguous word. In the Jewish tradition, even though it's grammatically plural, it can be taken as referring to the one God of Israel. However, sometimes in the same sentence, it can also be taken as an actual plural, referring to a whole bunch of gods in general. In English, this is the difference between capital G, God, and lowercase g with an S on the end, gods. Of what God are the people of Dan asking a blessing? Now, here we have a man who's the grandson of Moses, who has attracted the services of a genuine Levite, who has impressed a large number of people in the tribe of Dan. Now, it is possible that every single one of these people has abandoned Yahweh to serve the balls completely. And yet, the Bible is usually quite happy to call out people who explicitly serve idols of Baal, Ashtoreth, or whatever god. And yet, the only word for God used in this story is Elohim, which is a perfectly acceptable word for Yahweh in Jewish tradition. Is it possible that Micah, the Levite, the Danites, and everyone around them all believe that they are faithfully worshiping Yahweh? The fact that the Bible tells us that they are objectively wrong would not alter their subjective perceptions. And it strengthens the idea that what we're looking at here is a multi-tribal community of faith with distinct traditions separate from the people around them. And of course, the fact that they don't all agree on the exact correct way to worship God, well, that seems to be a tradition for all of Jewish and Christian history. So there we go. Now we move a bit forward in time to the story of the Benjaminite War. Now again, many of the details aren't super important for us here, but essentially a Levite has a concubine, and he's not very nice to her, but at some point they're traveling through the town of Gibeah, a town in Benjaminite territory, thinking that they're going to be safe. Safer, ironically, than Jerusalem, which is at this point controlled by a foreign people. Now, various non-family-friendly events occur, and it turns out that the Levite was not actually safe in that town, and the Levite's concubine ends up dead. Now, in ancient Mesopotamia, we have a few cases where a king, upon defeating some notorious criminal, rebel, or enemy, would chop up the enemy's body and send it out to various parts of his kingdom as a way of spreading the news. It's only slightly more morally objectionable than all the people who get their news from Twitter nowadays. And so, this idea did exist in the culture of the time, so 
The Levite sends 12 pieces of the body, along with presumably an explanation of how he, a religious figure held in common reverence among all the people, was violated by the Benjaminites. And what happens next is that pretty much everyone shows up for a battle. Now, this is one reason to think we may still be in the relatively early days of Israel and Canaan, because this shows a fair bit of unity. The most unity that we see, in fact, between the conquests of Joshua and the height of David's monarchy. But this general unity shows us that the various groups of Israel really do seem to have some degree of unity, and that unity does seem to be bound, at least in part, through a common religious institution of the Levites. That is, unless the entire book of Judges is fiction. Then Benjamin and the rest of Israel fight, and the numbers are wildly off the mark for what is plausible, but we already discussed that a few times now. The point is that the rejection of a religious institution, indeed the attempted defilement of a priest and the successful defilement of something associated with the priest, is the spark for war. So much of what we see in these early Old Testament books is extremely typical of Near Eastern tribes and kings in general. But for all that we have a stereotype of all wars being fundamentally religious ones, and even though we do have Mesopotamian texts condemning enemies who defile religious centers, this sort of large-scale coalition war nominally justified by a religious event, as opposed to just purely secular concerns, is actually highly unusual in the ancient world. And to be completely honest, I'm having trouble thinking of anything similar until the sacred wars of ancient Greece. There were five of them from about 600 to 300 BCE, which each uh, caused coalitions to form in response to perceived desecrations around the temple at Delphi. Now, I'm probably missing some here, but such a thing is relatively rare in the ancient world, because for all that they often shared gods and religious systems, the almost transnational Levitical system of priests without a tribe, ritual laws common to the tribe and a god over all the tribes, as described in the Old Testament, would indeed be a unique thing in that context if it really existed. Sometimes in the ancient Near East, cities with the same patron god would go to war with each other. But we often get the sense that they didn't see themselves as having the same god. Rather, the Ishtar over here was kind of different from the Ishtar over there, and thus they don't unify on a religious basis, they just syncretize during times of cultural and political hegemony. Now anyway, after the Benjaminite War, the Benjaminites lose badly, but they are not destroyed, and the other tribes in the narrative don't let them get wiped out completely. Interesting. But instead prohibit intermarriage between their tribes and the Benjaminite tribe for a generation. 
which does suggest that such intertribal marriage was extremely common, another thing that would hold these tribes together as Israel, rather than disintegrating into sub-tribes, as would be expected of other pastoral and militarized ethnic groups during non-conquest periods. Now, how they resolve the matter of the Benjaminite wives is morally repulsive, and I genuinely don't know what to make of it, either from a theological or historical perspective. But the important thing is that Benjamin survives, because this will be Saul's line, ultimately. Next up, at least in our provisional chronology, I personally believe that the tale of Gideon and Abimelech comes near the end of the judges' period, because here is where we see people starting to grasp at kingship rather than community rule and the judges. In all honesty, this could have happened much earlier. It isn't like the idea of kingship had to be invented for anyone later to try it out. But there's one more clue that I've seen speculated on in Gideon's tale. You see, Gideon's area at the start of our tale is oppressed by the Midianites, and so Gideon is called by God to build an army. Except it turns out that most of the men who get raised into this army lack what would be for a nomad a basic survival skill of being very careful when drinking from a river. I've seen it proposed that this suggests most of Israel to have completed the transition from nomadic to settled, and thus we're closer socially to Samuel than Joshua. Now, it's a bit weak by itself, but I don't hang that much on it, so I guess it's fine. Could really happen at any point. Anyway, Gideon fights the Midianites, not much to see there, and some interpretations suggest that as he gets more vengeful rather than humble, he loses God's favor. But what's interesting here is at the end of his story, he comes back to his hometown, all the people try to acclaim him a king. Now in the story, he humbly refuses and turns the eyes of the people towards the true king, their god, which he does by constructing a fancy ephod so that the people of the town can use the ritual ephod divination like Saul and David would regularly consult in Samuel. And then they give thanks to their heavenly lord in their native tongue, which of course would have involved calling on Baal, for Baal was the word meaning Lord, and could cover a wide variety of gods under that title. Indeed, they call him specifically Baal Barith, meaning Lord of the Covenant, and then later they call him El Barith, God of the Covenant. Again, are they worshipping Yahweh? No, not by proper biblical standards, they're definitely not. But do they think that they're worshipping Yahweh? That's a lot harder to tell, but the answer may well be yes, again indicating as they are apostatizing that they are operating on a background of generally Yahwistic belief. And as a side note, a lot of these supposed apostasies, when viewed in this light, start to seem more like denominational disputes, 
not unlike the bloody Thirty Years' War between Catholics and Protestants. Now, obviously, they have genuine theological issues here, and likely they've also got political and economic ones as well under the surface. But these may be so bitter precisely because they are brother wars. I mean here the conflict between Gideon and the Bible narrator more than the conflict between Gideon and the Midianites. To me, the fact that the Bible narrator is here taking the time to condemn the actors in this old story suggests that maybe the Deuteronomistic historian believed these things really happened. He probably sees them in the context of the religious struggles of his own day. But our alternative is that he's taking the struggles of his own day and inventing a wholly new framework of narrative through which to condemn his contemporary opponents. Now, obviously, both of these have been suggested, and neither can really be justified outside of textual arguments within the narrative itself. So we're left, I guess, with faith and textual analysis and gut feeling to set our bounds of what may have actually happened here. But anyway, 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 having rejected kingship, faithfully pointing the people of Israel instead to the Lord of the Covenant, he now decides to live like a king. The question of whether Gideon was actually a king or not gets raised in some biblical commentaries. And as a fun side note, apparently there are still Samaritans around in the world. They think Gideon was a king. They have their own version of Joshua. It's fascinating. Anyway, we see him with 70 sons from many wives and one son from a concubine. He appears to be a community leader, a successful military leader, and a patron of a religious institution. Most tellingly, he bears a son who either at birth or later in life comes to be named Abimelech, usually pronounced Abimelech in English, a name which literally means, my father is king. On the other hand, as a successful military leader, he would have been extremely rich and well-respected even if he did go into a real retirement. He could well have been a judge or at least an informal community mediator and was clearly patriarch of a pretty good-sized household. And yet he could well have, as the story tells us, rejected formal kingship his entire life for ideological reasons. The text here is mixed enough that it could go either way. But whatever Gideon was doing, there's no question what his son Abimelech is doing. He starts out, and the first thing he does is kill all his brothers and proclaim himself king in Shechem. Now, so far, this is extremely standard stuff for an ancient power play. He does miss one brother, Jotham, who goes to God and receives a parable about kingship the sort of thing that would thematically work much better in anti-monarchal Samuel than in Judges. But basically, the story goes that all the trees wanted a king, but the good, worthwhile trees were too busy being good, and only the bramble had nothing worthwhile to offer, so only it had time to be king. And sure enough, we may not have kings in our own days, but what is Congress if not a house of brambles? 
Now, having condemned kingship as an institution which attracts only the worst elements of society, like politics throughout the ages, we return to Abimelech and watch him rule for three years. Now, Abimelech has justified his rule based on tribal ties with the people of Shechem, not the religious justification we're going to see with Saul and David. This has theological resonance, but it also has the problem that when someone else comes along with a stronger tribal tie, the leading lords of the city, who are, by the way, called Balim, or Balls of the city, rebel against him. The rebellion goes badly, and the rebels are all wiped out. But then a lady drops a big old rock on Abimelech's head and he dies. Thus ends the dynasty of Gideon and the first Israelite kingship. Note that Abimelech is sometimes described as a local ruler, just of Shechem. But in other places in his story, it sounds like he's king over all of Israel. It is possible that he was nothing but a local leader, and later editors confused the situation, either purposefully or because they were just used to a king being over all of Israel. It's also possible that he ruled over Shechem and surrounding areas, and that was an important enough central area to claim control over all of Israel that mattered. Also possible is that he actually had some measure of control over a bunch or all of the tribes of Israel, though given the brevity of his reign, it must have been an extremely tenuous hold. A fourth possibility is that he only ruled over Shechem, but claimed kingship over all of Israel, much the way that the Mesopotamian kings often claimed to be kings of the four corners of the universe, even when their own little empires were quite diminished. But with all this out of the way, all this out of the way, we can finally transition into the book of Samuel and Kings. While our narrative picks up pretty smoothly, there's a lot about these books that represent a whole new chapter in our understanding of how the Bible was written. And finally, a remarkable amount of agreement on many points between conservative and skeptical scholars. Now, most importantly, this whole thing, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, it's all one large book, broken up for reasons of tradition and what we could call publishing constraints more than anything that matters. Now, that doesn't mean it was written all at once, but there is a substantially consistent authoritative voice running through the main portions. Dates of final composition range from Hezekiah to Josiah to the Babylonian exile because the narrator inserts little mentions of later days throughout the work. And also, the narrator loved King David, with fully a third of the material across all four books involving him and his adventures. But just because it appears to have been largely put together by one person or one group doesn't mean it didn't have additions later on. There are manuscript traditions that have nothing prior to 1 Samuel chapter 25, and other traditions that lack 1 Samuel chapters 1 through 8, 
suggesting that all the stuff prior to David was added later. Indeed, Chronicles, our parallel biblical source, mentions basically none of this earlier stuff, giving Saul a very brief mention, just long enough to kill him off. Now, that doesn't mean that this stuff was just made up. Indeed, there are those who believe the story of the Ark of the Covenant was at least as old as any of the David material, if not older, but rather that someone during the Babylonian exile decided that these sections would make a good preface to the existing tales of David already found in whatever version of kings they had at the time. Now, while the earlier books, we talk about them maybe existing in oral tradition, sometimes with written sources, pretty much everyone seems to posit that most, if not all, of Samuel and Kings comes from a variety of written sources, largely from royal archives themselves. Now, the books as good as tell us in the various references where we can learn more about the later kings by reading the Acts of Solomon, the Chronicles of uh, David, the Annals of the Kings of Judah, the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel. And while these earlier chronicles may well have resembled the chronicles of Mesopotamian kings, which are themselves usually quite helpful to historians, the finished product of kings is very much didactic in nature, explicitly evaluating the rulers of the two nations based on their adherence or failure to adhere with the particular religious mission of the Yahwist exclusivist priests of Jerusalem. Now, this last, though, isn't actually a bad thing for historicity. After all, if they are evaluating the kings, then it would maybe kind of defeat the point to make things up whole cloth. But the perspective should never be forgotten about either, and I assure you it will not be in coming episodes. Saul is judged ultimately to have been a bad king because he violates religious precepts. And in his conflict with David, he's painted as a villain because we already know David is the hero of the story. But we aren't to Saul quite yet. There is one more story, sometimes called the Ark Narrative, which in general setting could have fit pretty well into the book of Judges, but actually comprises 1 Samuel uh, chapters 1 to chapter 8. The story starts with two families, Elkanah and Eli. Now, Elkanah is a wealthy man with two wives, one of whom is barren. Now, the barren one prays for a child and gets baby Samuel, who she dedicates, maybe as a Nazarite, the translations don't all agree here, and gives him to Eli. Now, Eli is a judge and a priest in Shiloh, which has for some time been the home of the Ark of the Covenant, thus one of many holy places established to Yahweh in ancient Israel, though one taken by later authors to be the only valid one at this point in time. Now, what exactly Shiloh looks like in this period is a bit hard to tell. Judges and Samuel is thin on the details, now, obviously, the Ark of the Covenant is there, and so presumably are a bunch of Levites. Interestingly, the question of how many Levites there were before the monarchy seems to be not merely unanswerable, 
but a question that indirectly touches on so many other topics that it's an actively impossible question. There was a town in Shiloh, not just a holy site, but not much of one, even by the modest standards of this period. We hear of the faithful visiting once a year, possibly for something called the Festival of Yahweh, though details and any other possible name are unclear. Now, this contrasts to the three great festivals of Temple Judaism, especially Second Temple Judaism, Passover, Shavuot, and Sukkot, though details are fuzzy enough that arguments have been made for all three of these being the festival of Yahweh. Now, the holy site itself is poorly described in such a way that some have interpreted it as a large structure housing the ark, not the portable tent of tabernacle. Now, these hints, if accurate, would suggest a permanent temple existed prior to Solomon's temple, which is, of course, theologically inconvenient in multiple ways. However, it could well be that the writer of the work was using language from his own day to describe the holy place, which he would have been many generations or centuries removed from. And these are little details I'm talking about here, like mentioning doors when a tent should have tent flaps and such, and Hebrew had a lot of very specific words for tent structures because of their nomadic history, and so they there was a separate word for tent flaps that they could have been using instead of the word for door like you see on a permanent structure. Another thing proposed is that there was a structure built around the tent of tabernacle, preserving the letter of the rules around the tent while still being able to claim a permanent temple for themselves. This sort of letter-of-the-law legalistic corruption that Jesus was always protesting in his day. But the most defining period of Shiloh, presented to us as the most legitimate center of Israelite worship in this time, is the fact that it is, from at least the start of this narrative, if not earlier, corrupt. Eli seems may be okay, though he is a bit of a jerk to Hannah, but his sons are pretty much defined in the narrative by their corruption and little else. And by the way, in that Samaritan um, historical tradition and religious tradition, the Samaritans believed that Eli himself was corrupt, not just his sons, and their historical tradition seems to go at least as far back as a lot of this older uh, Jewish stuff. So it's just something to think about. Anyway, whether it was many priests of Shiloh who were corrupt or just the sons of Eli, it's not clear. But really, it doesn't take that many corrupt priests to defile a sanctuary. Just ask the Vatican. And soon enough, they're cursed to die. And after that, Eli is cursed for failing to properly govern either his sons or the tabernacle. Interestingly, Samuel, who appears good and faithful throughout, is confirmed in Scripture as a prophet, but never as a priest possibly because of the replacement of the house of Eli with the house of Zadok in the temple times during the time of the United Monarchy. It's a 
political issue in its own day, but, I mean, we don't care about it. Anyway, Samuel becomes a prophet, and his first prophecy is to condemn his adopted father's house. As he grows, he becomes known as a prophet in Shiloh to all of Israel, and then our story shifts to the Ark narrative. Now, nothing in Samuel's birth narrative, which we just looked at, is confirmed archaeologically. Samuel could just as well have been fictional or heavily fictionalized, or could have lived just as described. We don't have any way of knowing. The Ark narrative, though, now this is plausible in its major details, and in the central action, that is the destruction of Shiloh, is archaeologically confirmed around this time, and indirectly confirmed by the fact that the cult center of Israel changes after this point. That is to say, whatever else you think about the United Monarchy, we're pretty sure that Shiloh was destroyed around 1050 BCE, plus or minus a few decades, and was before that a cult center. In the time while Samuel is becoming famous, the Philistines launch a large attack. We aren't really sure where Ebenezer and Aphek are, but it's a pretty straightforward major battle, and the Israelites straightforwardly lose. Of note is that the Israelites appear to fight a coalition here. We may not be able to trust the raw numbers, but there are numerous hints in the text that this whole campaign was extremely significant politically, as well as, of course, theologically. And most guesses at the location put it around the intersection of the major central tribes of Israel. Now, this was a significant defeat, and the Israelites respond by getting the Levitical institution involved, even pulling out the Ark of the Covenant to help rally substantially more Yahwistic groups to their cause. Now, we know from the narrator that this was theologically a mistake, but to pull a god out from his home for the sake of a battle in the wider Near Eastern context, it's almost unheard of. Some have suggested that when Mesopotamian texts talk about Ninurta, Ishtar, Asher, or whoever fighting alongside the army, that this indicates the presence of a cult statue physically at the battle. But while certainly some religious presence would have been present at nearly all major ancient battles, the issue with this is that we hear about gods getting captured in war pretty regularly, but almost never on the battlefield itself. Rather, the god is captured when the city, and thus the temple, is captured, suggesting the main cult's image usually stays safely inside the temple. For Israel to bring the cult image out of the tabernacle for this battle is hugely significant, both as a motivator for the warriors and as a massive gamble. Now, as it so happens, the gamble doesn't actually pay off, but it tells us that this was seen as a make-or-break situation against the Philistines. Anyway, Another battle occurs, and another defeat befalls Israel, this one significantly greater than the first, and many Levites die, and probably other people too, but I guess no one cares about them. 
And of course, the Ark of the Covenant is carried away into a temple of Dagon. Now, this part is extremely typical of how ancient wars went. Captured gods were rarely treated badly, but brought reverently into the temples of the victorious city. The ancient Hittites supposedly had thousands of gods in the temple complexes around their capital, many of whom had been captured in just this fashion. But then a plague arises in the Philistine areas. Now, interestingly, the Deuteronomistic historian insists that the Philistines are aware of the general outline of the Exodus narrative. And indeed, if the story is as old as things like the Song of the Sea might indicate, they may have heard a version of the Plagues of Egypt story, whether or not it was actually true. And so, after some theological shenanigans, they return the Ark of the Covenant, which the Philistines treat as pretty much just a cult image for Yahweh. Most fun, that mentions of the uh, magic spell of golden tumors and golden mice, these are extremely similar in form to Mesopotamian rituals against plague and pestilence. We covered those back on the TikTok, which... TikTok is so cancerous. I have, I have not been doing it very often, but I do get on there very occasionally. Anyway, plague or no, Yahwistic power or no, returning the cult image of a rival god following the conclusion of a war is actually far from unheard of. One of the best examples, discussed back in episode 74, is that after the Hittites sacked Babylon in 1595 BCE, they carried off the statue of Marduk, the chief god of Babylon, and then a while later they just sort of returned it for reasons that are not wholly clear. We talked about that drama back then. Anyway, they bring the Ark back to Kiriath-Jerim, because though the Bible didn't mention it explicitly, the town of Shiloh was totally destroyed in that Philistine war earlier a massive blow to a pretty major Israelite religious center. Meanwhile, Samuel is prancing around the countryside, letting everyone know that the reason the Philistines were allowed to win their humiliating victory was because of the idolatry of the people and the corruption of the priests. As such charismatic figures often do during times of great despair, he draws a following around him, and they all decide one day to go up to a place called Mizpah to do some rituals and make God happy. Now what follows is a bit confused. You see, the Philistines show up in force. The Philistines had chariots, while the Israelites had none, likely a factor in their previous victories. It isn't at all clear why the Philistines were in the area. Maybe they'd heard about a large gathering and were going to attack it, or maybe they were just passing by. Whatever the case, there's a loud thundering of the Lord, thought by many people to indicate a storm with actual thunder and lightning, which would have rendered the chariots useless and potentially panicked the horses. It would be under the cover of this that Samuel's religious mob attacked. They weren't very effective. The already panicked Philistines do rout, but we don't hear a great deal of enemy casualties. Still, Samuel makes the most of what he proudly declares to be something akin to a restoration of God's favor after the first set of battles, 
and on the back of this becomes important enough to be considered among the Shof team of Israel. Historically speaking, there is a secular version of events here that seems, I would say, kind of likely to have happened. It all matches details of how ancient wars were often waged, accounts for the destruction of Shiloh, and geopolitically sets the stage for the wars of King Saul. For those with a bit of faith, just add in a bit of trust that the miracles also happened. And you have a story that it's at least as valid as history as anything written in antiquity. Only if you drop the entire united monarchy from your vision of history can you plausibly drop the Philistine War. That said, what follows may well have been pure invention. Ancient historians loved to put fictional speeches in the mouth of their subjects, and the entire back and forth between Samuel and the people of Israel about kingship is very neat, concise, and composed. And while it's not impossible that this is a literal account, it may well have always been intended as nothing more than a summary of the debate between the pro-judgeship Yahwist faction and the pro-kingship faction among the Israelites. Or, there could never have been an actual kingship faction, and Saul just kind of made himself king, and this was all written later to justify it. The ultimate truth is unknowable outside of faith on this matter. But anyway... In the narrative, Samuel is convinced to find a good king for Israel. And so God leads him to a man whose qualifications are that he's wealthy, tall, and handsome, which is about as good as most government systems get. This, finally, is Saul, who I said I would get to in this episode, and goodness gracious, I sure did. But the story of Saul himself it's going to have to wait for the next episode. It's quite a story, and one that often gets lost in the focus on David. But join us next time as we take a look at some random Habiru warlord who does a bunch of conquering, falls out of favor with the religious faction, and ultimately dies in battle. Thank you for listening.